The true champion is always behind. I believe that. You got to keep going. Winning is not a, a marathon. It's a sprint and never ends. And that's what it takes. That's Brian Panish, one of the country's leading trial attorneys and founding partner of Panish, Shea & Boyle. If you stay the same, you're going back. So you always have to be moving forward, trying new things, whether it be expanding, new areas of practice, new focuses of your practice, new ways you're doing things. If you just say, we're doing great, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, then people are going to pass you. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Brian Panish to discuss the never-ending spirit of winning, the importance of consistent self-improvement, and why champions should only worry about competing with themselves. I'm not, my DNA, I'm not capable of that. I wanna be involved, I wanna know what's going on, I'm talking to lawyers about their cases, because look, if my name's first, my reputation's on the line, whether it's the 34th lawyer in the firm or me, they're gonna look at it as if it's me, my name, so I'm concerned about the product of the work quality that the firm's doing at all times. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Brian Panish is a personal injury lawyer who's obtained some of the most significant jury verdicts in United States history. With over 500 verdicts and settlements exceeding $1 million, over 100 verdicts in excess of $10 million, over half a dozen verdicts in excess of $50 million, and even a $4.9 billion verdict for good measure. Brian's journey to the top is no overnight success. In fact, he developed his relentless desire to succeed not in the courtroom, but on the football field. The NFL, the NBA, or MLB, but as college, it became the NFL, and I was blessed to receive a football scholarship, play with some great players, and realize that you know only a few guys in high school make it to college, and much less make it to the NFL, although from my high school, 17 players made it to Division One, and in my college team, maybe three players made it to the NFL. So it's much harder, but what I take from that, besides all the competition and the fun and the bonding, was the life lessons that I learned from the coaches and the players and the team were, were invaluable for me and for what I ended up doing. I imagine that a lot of those life lessons that you learned, you, you apply to your, to your practice today. What, what were some of those key lessons? Oh, just I had this incredible coach, Jim Sweeney. He was an Irishman from Butte, Montana, son of a hard rock miner. And he never let you forget that. And he never lets you get complacent. You're always behind. You're always competing. You know, piss poor preparation leads to piss poor performance. Uh, and just, you know, all these little sayings that he had, I actually have some of them on the wall here in my office. So I learned so much from him, so much from my high school coaches that it really helped mold me as a person and as a competitor and eventually as a trial lawyer. Now, I know you come from a large family of lawyers. Your father's a lawyer, your brother's a lawyer, your wife's a lawyer, and I think even one of your daughters is a lawyer. So, And one's taking the bar in two weeks. 
What's the secret to get the kids on board? Well, you know, my dad was a big influence in all of our lives, although my mom was a nurse and my one sister is a doctor and the other sister is a nurse. But my dad was a kind of guy that was loved to cross-examine you at the dinner table. And you learn real quick what it was like to be a witness with the yes, no's. Don't try to explain your answer. But also just what I took from it is many of his friends were trial lawyers. And where we lived, there were some, but not a lot. But I saw, whether it be Thanksgiving, which we always celebrated with one of his friends, a big trial lawyer's family, or his other friends when they get together, they had so much fun talking about the stories of their trials. And there wasn't a lot of money at stake in those days. They're really, you know, if you got a $100,000 verdict or you lost a hundred, that was a huge deal. But in the 60s, they were just laughing and just telling the stories about the witnesses, the judges, the lawyers, the doctors. And it was captivating. And I thought, you know, that's a great thing. I want to do something like that. And as I eventually didn't make the NFL, I tried to be a coach. I realized maybe I should try law. And trying it, I learned right away the only kind I liked was the courtroom kind. And, and you certainly had you know, a tremendous amount of experience in the courtroom. I mean, so I saw that it was over, I think over 100 verdicts and settlements in excess of 10 million, six in excess of 50, and I think over 500 in excess of a million. So your case results are astounding, to say the least. We speak to a lot of successful trial attorneys. What do you believe separates the, you know, the great trial lawyers from, from everybody else? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things, but it's, it's about winning. It's about competition, never giving up. But really, the most important thing, I think, is the passion the passion for what you do. For me, it's about the clients. And I just love hearing the stories of all these different people. Look, I grew up in this city, in the inner city. I knew all kinds of people from every race, religion, color, hang out with them. When I was in college, you know, there's different races on the football team. You know, a college I went to was a redneck kind of area, big agriculture area. So I just love all the different people and the jurors and the clients and just and the competition I really love. And I took something from Edward Bennett Williams, which my one of my uh, mentors, Brown Green, told me that Edward Bennett Williams, he lived contest living. And in life, there's really three areas where there's always a winner and loser. In today's society, you know, everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets recognition. But in three areas of life, number one, politics. Number two, athletics. And number three, courtroom law. Those things all kind of work for me. I've been a lot, very involved in politics, but athletics and the courtroom, it's a little tougher because you don't get to do as many trials as you do play games. And, you know, we play a game, you have a bad loss. You can't sit around and think about it. You got to go back to the next day to practice and move on. So we have a 24-hour rule here where you can – celebrate or commiserate for one day and then you got to move on to the next case. Yeah, it's interesting when you mentioned that, you know, in life, especially as you talk about participation trophies and winners and losers, what do you think is really the difference between the two? You know, I imagine it's a function of discipline and accountability. Those are probably big components, but what are the really the big the biggest separators? Well, you know, I just read a book called Winning by Tim Grover. I don't know if you, I would recommend that to everyone. He lists the factors for winning but he lists everyone with a number one. And his philosophy is, well, if you have a number five, you're not going to pay attention to that as much as number one. 
And a lot of what he talks about is, his first book was called Relentless, but he talks about somebody else has winning, you need to take it from them. Winning, you hear a lot of people say, oh, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a marathon. It's a sprint that never ends. And these kind of this mindset, I think, can drive a lot of people to be successful. But dedication, hard work, all that is a given. We don't even look into that. That's given. The knowledge of the subject matter, all of that. It's more the mindset of how you go about it, what you do to perfect it, and how you carry it out every day. Funny you mentioned Tim Grover. So Tim will actually be at our office in two weeks and we're recording a podcast. I don't know if it's great to say this, but I, I read that book. I'm like, oh my God, this is how I've been living my life. But some of the things aren't so good, like winning is selfish. Okay, it is. You know, sometimes your family, as a trial lawyer, we all know, you've missed events, vacations, birthday parties. Winning is selfish, and there's a lot of things in there that are not maybe the best traits to have across the board in your life, but to win, they're required. And it's always so fascinating to me, like so many of the people that we admire and so many of the people that other attorneys, the trial lawyers that they admire, they see the wins, but a lot of times they don't see a lot of the, the struggles, the adversities, the trade-offs that they have to make. Could you share some of the trade-offs you had to make perhaps in early years or just kind of on your way to growing the practice to what it is today? You know, I had kind of a plan when I started out. I must say that my father helped me. And my first part of my plan was to go work in a defense firm and try as many cases as I could, take as many depositions as I could, and start working on my skills and going to court as much as I could. And I did that for a few years, and I won every trial, not bragging. Many of them were very easy. Maybe at times I was tough on the plaintiffs because I wanted to go to trial and get that experience. Then I went to what I thought at the time was known as the top, well, which was known, plaintiff firm in California, that let young guys try cases, hard cases, but they gave them the opportunity. So I went to work for a guy who was in charge of the firm, who's at the time president of the California Trial Lawyers. And for that whole year, he was in Sacramento. There was huge tort initiatives, which I learned through him a lot about the legislative process, preserving the practice, which you never would know about at that stage of my career. And I got to do things on my own and learn and learn from the other lawyers in the firm, but just go out and doing it. And the first three trials that they gave me, a paralyzed gentleman, great guy, a brain damage, serious injury, I lost every case. I thought I could win them, but when I think back, there's no way I was going to win those cases. But I was handling them as if I was winning, I was going to win. And I lost and I got right back up. And eventually, almost three years after being there, a little less, I won a big case and as a police cover-up for a family who's big in the news. And I realized, and one thing Grover says, Tim Grover, that people that never won, they don't know what it takes. They don't really know. So they don't know what it takes to win. And I know what it takes. And I, I look back at athletics and the givens, though, the discipline, the accountability, the efficiency, working on your technique, all of that is a given. But it's the ups and downs. And I, I like to think of trials. One of my uh, mentors, I was a young lawyer. We're driving home. We're defending this case. 
We're going back to the court, and he's from Oklahoma. He says, you know, Brian, there's no greater thing, feeling in life, to drive him back to the office, having a great day in court. He says, but there's no worse thing than driving back to the office, ever getting your ass kicked, and having a bad game. And what the key is, is to get off that roller coaster and try to stay in the middle as you go through these highly emotional, intense days in trial. So I think building on that, then I got in a firm where it was a great firm, then it changed to a smaller firm, but still, you know, good size. And I got the opportunity to do more cases, started doing them on my own, and I started to win some big cases, and I won a really big case, and then I won some more. And eventually, I felt that, look, you know, I want to do it my way. It's not we didn't agree on everything, but also... I wanted to do it my way, and so I started my firm with three attorneys, and I think within like 12 years, we had 35 attorneys. And now, it's the same thing, though. I'm really into team building. I'm into training of all lawyers, working on your skills. We do cross-examination seminars, in-house training to really help the lawyers grow, just like in football whether you're a defensive back or a linebacker, every day is part of practice. They call individual sessions of the practice schedule. You're working on those skills that you need to do better. And you keep working on them and working on them. And I think lawyers, you know, they watch seminars and they read books, which is good. But I think to actually practically working on those skills, now in the area of Zoom, I myself did, with Roger Dodd, extensive cross-examination during the pandemic school by Zoom with witnesses and everything. Then I took that and I used it in cases, and I just continued to practice it over 50-plus depositions during the pandemic. I mean, as Mark McCormick was a guy that started CAA, was a big-time agent, he always said the true champion is always behind, and I I believe that. you got to keep going, and life— A winning is not a marathon, it's a sprint and never ends. And that's what it takes. What's really fascinating to me, because I I know a lot of people, especially when they're just getting started, they've got that, you know, the Maslow's needs just to survive. But when you've reached a certain level of success, I think to, you know, to keep that fire burning. And and I want to ask in particular, you know, that landmark verdict that you had, $4.9 billion verdict against General Motors. I'm just curious, what was that day like? And then what happened right after that? Well, you know, that day was 22 years ago last Friday, and some people posted some social media and things in the firm and the lawyers that were on the trial team. We had a great team. And I thought back, and I remember it very well. The case was a bifurcated, it was a product liability, high-speed impact by a drunk driver, explodes his car, five people, six people seriously burned. High speed, General Motors was saying we met the state of the art. We had a lot of great discovery that had been done by other lawyers around the country that helped show that what we claimed General Motors had conducted a cost-benefit analysis and determined that the fix the cars would cost $859 and to fight the lawsuits would be cheaper. So they'd rather just fight the lawsuits. And that was our claim. So we try the case. First phase, jury comes back like July 5th for 109 million compensatory damages, which at that day, that was real money, 109 million. But they found 11 to one that they malice, oppression, or fraud. So then we went into the punitive damage phase. 
Jury goes out. Jury comes back with this $4.9 billion verdict. I wasn't that shocked, I must say. But then the media just took off. We had a big press conference with all the jurors. It was national. At that time, CNN had headline news. Show you how news cycles are. Every 15 minutes, all you would see was me with this young, poor African-American girl who had her arm burned off in her face, just repeating and me saying things, you know, like we caught him red-handed and profits over people. And it played all over the world until a week later when JFK crashed and it was wiped off the news. But after that, I started to have more recognition doing more trials. And I, you know, I didn't stop with that verdict. It was great. We had to fight it. We ended up settling the case. Clients are doing fine. But that was just kind of the beginning for me. Twenty that was twenty-two years ago last Friday. And I'd won a lot of big cases before that, I would say, but obviously that one paled in comparison. I just had a great experience being with the trial team, some of my friends that I'd been friends with for most of my life, and we really enjoyed it, and we moved on, though. I mean, it was a battle, but we celebrated a little bit. I had My son was born two weeks later. My wife says, of course, you have great timing, and to go back to that, the sacrifices, this would be my third child. My wife says to me, look, man, you've been in all these trials. You know, you're not here all the time with these other two. So I'm making you go to this refresher baby course on this day. I go, sure, no problem. I'll do it. Well, it just so happens that day is the Saturday after the verdict, which is on the front page of every newspaper. My voicemail is full. And I'm like, come on, can I, can I get a pass? She goes, no, and bring back the certificate. Don't leave early. So I was right back to reality within 12 hours of the verdict. It was kind of how I lived my life. So it was fun. It was exhilarating. It did a good thing for those people. But there was a lot more work to be done. It's interesting to me, like after a high like that, because I imagine you you must have been extremely proud. I mean, extremely grateful just even to, for that moment in life. Was there any kind of down moment right after that? Just, just wondering if like you, know, you could have that type of moment again? You know, I always thought I would never be in like a bigger case, but I didn't worry about it. And and I've been other, you know, great moments, maybe not as much money, but just the same. And, and that in my career, if I rank all my verdicts, that wouldn't be my number one verdict. You know, I know we've been talking a lot about the wins, but just for the people listening, because, you know, Brian, I imagine that it, it hasn't always been on the way up, but were there any cases looking back that you really wanted to win that you thought you'd win, but had to take a painful loss? Well, I think I won every case in the courtroom. So I, I, so I lost the first three cases. I didn't lose too many cases. I think I had lost two trials in like 17 years. And I was doing a lot of trials. Now, some of them were cases I shouldn't have lost. And what is a loss? A loss could be getting less money. Let's say they offer you $10 million, you got five. You know, that's not really a win. But the Michael Jackson case was a tough case. Tried it for six or seven months. And I was a little bit worried, like, how am I going to handle losing because I knew that was a possibility in every case. And this case was hard. It was fought hard. They were prepared. They did a good job. They had a huge force of lawyers. And the jury came back. I was actually 
having a medical procedure with propofol, ironically. And the jury lost. I went home. Two of the guys came over. We had a beer. And we were down. But like the next day, I was okay. I did the best I could. And I did. And it was hard. And with the jury, some of the rulings, whatever you want to use to justify why you lost, we lost. We got beat. They did better. They won. So be it. But it made me realize, and then right after that, although I was doing another trial, helping these lawyers in my firm, we won a big verdict during the Michael Jackson case on a break. But the next trial, I go right into the next trial, wrongful death case. I have a bad feeling about it. Jury's out. I enter into this high-low agreement, and then I lose that case. So two cases in a row. But I felt good about that one. I knew I had a feeling it was a hard case and the client ended up getting money. Let me think. I don't know if I lost any since then, maybe. But losing, you know, everyone says you learn a lot from losing. I, I didn't really learn that much. I learned some some things. But, you know, you're going to lose this. My dad, I would always tell him, oh, I never lost the case. And he'd say, well, any lawyer tells you that they haven't tried very many cases. But it's not like sports where you get a game the next week where you get to get that bad taste or in the NBA or Major League Baseball the next day or in football week. Here, it could be who knows how long. It could be a pandemic. You don't have a trial for a year. For the trial lawyers that are going to be listening to this, and, and many of them are thinking, man, that must must be nice. Look at all the opportunities Brian had, all these different trials coming up, and they may not be in that position today. What, what advice would you give them to really set them up to have those types of opportunities? Well, I think there's no reason that you can't have opportunity. You just got to, how do you find it? Whether it be go to the government. If you want to get be a lawyer, a trial lawyer, you be a district attorney, public defender, city attorney. There's opportunities there. Now, you may have to get paid less. My first job, I got 27000 I was happy. I was living in a rent control house at the beach, paying like $200 rent, living with my buddies from law school, and we were just working all the time. We didn't care about money. And... I wanted to learn. And I think if you're driven by money, you're not going to be successful and you're not going to enjoy what you're doing. You have to find what you'd like and get good at it. And you're going to do good. It really seems like to be the best, it requires a certain level of almost like obsession, if you will. Right. So just almost this level of just always wanting to be, be better an insatiability, if you will. Did you, did you find that the case with you? Yes. I, I think as my good friend, John Morgan would say hungry, And I really believe that. I think part of it's in your DNA. You know, whether you're really rich or really poor, if you really have that, I call it the competitiveness. If you really have that desire, it doesn't matter. It's all about the passion. And when you're trying cases, the jurors know. They can see it. When you believe it and you're asking for a lot of money and they can see you believe it and you've established this credibility, you had a lot better chance to get there. What's driving you today? I mean, after all this and all these experiences, obviously it's not the money, but you know, you're, you're in the office today. So what's, what's, you know, waking you up in the morning? I've been in the office every day, pretty much in the pandemic. What's driving me today is to help other people, the clients to establish this firm to go on when I'm not here. I think to continue to provide service to people that need it when I'm not here to do it anymore, that the other lawyers can take it over. And I think there are many people capable of that. And hopefully they'll be able to do it to the same level or a better level and to keep getting better. I want to keep getting better. You know, I'm not a big uh, 
fisherman, although I do like fishing, and I do like some leisurely activities, but I like the cases. I like the trials. I like the strategy. I like the clients. I like the other lawyers in the firm. I like talking about cases. So it is kind of, it is an obsession. And it seems like, just from my experience, there's really two types of law firm owners. One, you know, when they hit a big case, you know, they go and buy, you know, a nice watch, a nice car, a nice home. The other type of law firm owner, when they hit a big case, they take that money, put it right back into the business, invest in their team, their infrastructure, and so on. I'm pretty sure which one you were, but I'm just curious if there was like a pivotal moment, at least with the law firm, where things really started to take off. Well, I think uh, in the beginning, you know, obviously, although right away we won two big cases and we lost one. But I think what took off was just doing more trials, getting better experience, getting better at it. But the money, if you're driven by that, it's a problem. I mean, if you do the right thing, you're going to be successful. You're going to earn money. You're going to be able to provide. Look, I like to do things philanthropically. I mean, that helps other people. I like to do that. I've heard you say this so many times, doing more trials, getting in the courtroom. So much of it seems like just being in the arena, but a large majority of even trial lawyers, it's almost like, I don't know if there's like this apprehension to trying cases or they want to be perfect or they're trying to watch webinars or whatever it is, but it seems like you were just like, just get on the field. You do, but you want to be prepared for it. I, I, that's why the training is so critical and to try out new things, to try not be afraid to experiment and try the thing. You know, look, a lot of the things that I have been successful with, other lawyers invented it. And I've, as we all have, taken from others and learned from so many others, and Mo Levine, all these great lawyers, and reading the books and going to the seminars. I did all that too. I still read the books about the lawyers and the techniques, but I think it's working on it. And that's what I get from the sports, whether it be golf, tennis, you have to keep working on that skill to get better. And I see these kids, like my kids, and they have personal coaches. Everyone, why, why aren't lawyers being trained by coaches and trainers like professional athletes and others? And that's what I've tried to incorporate into our firm is that level of training to get better, to excel. And I've heard you encourage other law firm owners to, to pay attention to the business of law and to not lose sight of the business side when they're really trying to grow their firms, if you could elaborate on that. Well, a lot of lawyers, they just say, oh, just give me the file. I want to go to trial. But, you know, if you're running a big firm, it's a business. You have to have the right people in place. You have to monitor your, your spending, your marketing. I mean, there's a whole bunch to run in a law firm. And many great trial lawyers aren't always the greatest businessmen. So you want to get with other people that may be good at that. Some lawyers, you don't want them to do anything on the business side. You just want them to be in trial every day. That's where they excel. But if you really want to have a, a firm, you want to grow it, and you want to be successful, you have to pay attention to all those details. They don't really talk about them that much at these seminars. It's more sexy to hear the lawyer talk about how you get the $100 million verdict versus how you get the right malpractice insurance and how you keep your overhead down in running a firm. They're very important. And as a plaintiff lawyer growing up, seeing my dad, who eventually was a plaintiff lawyer, there can be some lean times. And that's just part of the business that we're in. And just like in professional sports, it, the importance of building strong teams and having you know just great teamwork. I know you mentioned this in building a great team at your practice. Like, what were some of the lessons that you learned over time in, in building an organization, particularly with with the team? The number one thing that was important in a law firm is culture. Just like a team, just like a locker room. If you have people that are committed to the goals of the firm and create that culture, you're going to do fine. 
But if you have people, we used to call them football, the coach say, you know, guys that have shit in their nose and they got a runny nose and they're in the locker room and they're changing and the next guy next to him, they're not playing or in a law firm. They're not getting the good cases. Or then they start complaining and he starts giving it to him. And it's going around the locker room unless you have leadership and leaders and a culture that's defined that's going to permeate in your law firm. So I think number one is the culture and defining who you are and what you want to be. And for us, our culture is we're going to get the best results for the clients. We're going to do the best work. We're going to try the case if they're not going to pay what's fair and reasonable for the client. And we're going to continue to do a great job and build our brand and our reputation and continue to get better. And if you do that, you're going to be successful. But if people don't want to work here, then I'm the first to tell them, hey, if this ain't working out for you, you know, go ahead. You know, the coach, you go complain to the coach and say, I'm not playing. They're like, well, maybe you should do something about it or go to another team. And you see that in college football with this portal now. You get these 19-year-old kids that go to the school. All of a sudden, the other guy beats them out. Tomorrow, they leave. That's not the culture you want to establish. And you see that in college athletics now, big time. And speaking of culture, I mean, as you've described yours, I imagine there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this podcast and say, I want that same culture at my law firm. But what are some of the decisions that you're making, whether it's you know certain non-negotiables, certain things that you do not tolerate, whether it's certain types of people that you hire or certain people that you have to exit from the firm that ensure that culture stays what it is? Well, I think, number one, they have to be uh, dedicated to the practice and the clients, and they got to know about the cases. They got to work hard, but they got to know that it's not about them. It's always about the client and it's the client comes first. It's not about them getting a big verdict or getting the headlines. It's about doing the right thing for the client. And if you keep that in mind, you're always right. It's when you stray from that and you want to get a bigger verdict and you don't want to settle or do whatever it takes to get out there in the media. Sometimes it's not advisable to go out of the media. It's not always a good thing. But people are more into themselves. You know, this and this, Tim, you can ask Tim Grover about this lying to oneself is another uh, one of his factors or themes where people are so busy out there in the social media or puffing up what they've done versus spending the time to go out and do it and accomplish it themselves. And that lying to oneself, that's one of his big things that he talks about. Even specifically, let's say with, with another lawyer in the firm or an, you know, another team member, they may say, you know what, Brian, that's easy for you to say. It's not about the money, given all the success that you've had. But right now, I'm trying to figure out how to grow my career. I'm trying to figure out how to pay my bills, like all these different things. How do you make sure that they remain focused on the right things, and particularly the client experience? Well, usually most of them make enough money, they don't have that problem. But if you have somebody like that, and I've had that, that's a bad, you got to work with them and get away from that. And I've had guys come in, I'm saying, you're working about your loans. Why do you have a 525 BMW paying $1,000 a month? Why are you living in a two-bedroom apartment? You're one person in this nice area. I mean, you're creating some of these problems yourself. It, but if somebody's worried about that, and this, that's they're not going to make it. Yeah, it's almost like if that's the primary driver, one, you, you probably won't make the best decisions or the decisions that are in the interest of the client, and two, you just you constantly carry that with you. And I think when you're freed of that, you can operate more creatively. Like when you're doing things, I imagine like on a day to day basis, you don't have to do any of them. Every, everything becomes a choice. Well, yeah, I mean, but I, but I I know I have things that I feel I have to do. I have cases I have to work on. I've taken a lot. On one case in particular, I've been working on for. Six years, I probably took 50 depositions on that case in the pandemic. 
I mean, I don't want to do it, but that's what it takes. That's what I'm going to do to get done and show them that we're going to trial and they're not going to just slough us off or beat our clients down. We're, we're going to be there. And it's still fascinating. I hope you don't mind me like diving deeper into this because I know you say you don't you don't want to do it in the sense that it may not be something that's enjoyable. But I mean, you could always, of course, either give that case to another another attorney, someone else in the firm. You could go off on vacation for six months, but yet that that drive is still there to want to be there. Look, I brought the case in. I'm responsible. I'm not just handing off someone else. For this year, I had two words for the firm, and the one comes from my college football coach: accountability. And number two is efficiency, because I see lawyers are not efficient. They don't understand, you know, what's important, what's not important. And they spend time and fighting with the lawyers and doing stuff on stuff that really doesn't matter. But accountability is key on any team. And it's the other members of the team, not just the coach, that have to enforce accountability on one another. Yeah, it, this has come up on, on, a, on a few podcasts over the years in, in the sense that, you know, some have this idea of almost like absentee ownership where they can be somewhere else and the practice is running. But some people probably do great on that. I'm not my DNA. I'm not capable of that. I want to be involved. I want to know what's going on. I'm talking to lawyers about their cases because, look, if my name's first, my reputation's on the line, whether it's the 34th lawyer in the firm or me, they're going to look at it as if it's me my name. So I'm concerned about the product of the work quality that the firm's doing at all times. Mm -hmm. And I would say the absentee ownership thing, I've never seen it work well for, for any long period of time. Even, even John Morgan, you know, he, he, he's still involved intimately in the firm. I think it's you setting the tone, right? Setting the tone for what the culture will be being actively involved and actually wanting to be there. Right. Right. No, I like what we do. John Morgan will say when everyone's accountable, no one's accountable. You got to have somebody that's accountable for everything. So, Brian, as you grew the practice just over the years, what were some of the, the biggest mistakes you made? Because I'd, I'd love to hear about some of those and then some of the things that you learned in the process. Well, obviously, the biggest mistakes plaintiff lawyers make is case selection. If you have that down, you're going to be a way better off. And at times, we've got involved in cases that we shouldn't have. And we've learned from that. So, I would say, that would be a big mistake. I think maybe for me, not having been more uh, global, and it's what I mean by that is, I mean, I was involved in MDL-type litigations around the country, but now I'm much more involved in other states in the West, and I think what I'm encouraging all the lawyers of my firm now to do, as soon as they take the bar, is to get admitted in another state and to expand your practice that way. I've done that at the end of my I've said I'm in the third quarter. I'm like a redshirt junior. But uh, up front, so now I give a special bonus for every lawyer after they take the bar, if they go take another bar. And to help them expand their practice globally, you know, whether it be in California, Nevada, you know, I'm in Texas or uh, Washington. I like to do cases in other places, too. And to learn more. So I think not thinking as globally, you know, I was more initially... California is a big place, California, and there's different parts of the state, and I've done all over the state, but now being involved in Nevada and Arizona, Washington, and Texas, just finished a case in Texas, it's uh, expanding the horizon, so I like it. So I think think globally earlier. And what about other law firms? I know some firms, they look at every other firm around them in their market as a competitor. How do you view that? Do you view that as competition, or do you view something else? 
one time I was fishing with my dad in the lake and these guys across from us were catching all kinds of fish. And of course they were illegally chumming and stuff, but I'm like, come on, man, those guys are beating us. He says, what you need to know in life is you need to compete with yourself, not others. Now, we obviously, we know what everyone's doing. We see what other law firms are doing. Some are doing good things. Some do things I wouldn't do. I have respect for them. And I guess you could say some are competitors, but I don't really see that as much today in the way the practices. It used to be we would go around every five law firms interviewing for a case. That doesn't happen as much today. With the internet, with TV marketing, that has changed. The practice, particularly here in Los Angeles, since when I became a lawyer in 1984 to today is dramatically changed. And you have to be able to change with the times. As we both know with John Morgan, he says, grow or die. I don't, I don't totally go with that. For our model, you know, we can't have 500 attorneys or all the advertising like John does. That's just not for us. But our model, sure, we could grow, but not like he would want us to do it. But it, but it seems like you agree with the the idea overall. And, and but I, I just I'd love to hear your perspective on it. What I like to say is, if you stay the same, you're going back. So you always have to be moving forward, trying new things, whether it be expanding new areas of practice, new focuses of your practice, new ways you're doing things. Yes, if you just say we're doing great, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, then people are going to pass you. And I'm just curious, like these days, Brian, how do you spend your time? Like what, what's a typical day like or a typical week like? Has that, has that evolved over time? Oh, yeah. It's, it's gone from being in the office at 630 in the morning or court to going home at 7 o'clock at night and doing more work to like now. Well, the pandemic for me was good in a sense. I was able to focus on a couple cases, focus on physical conditioning focus on firm-wide review and analysis and implementing changes and more organizational structure. So what's a typical day? Well, if I have a deposition at 9 a.m. usually, they used to go all day. I've taken up at the pandemic. Now I stand on a standing desk for every deposition, every podcast. I think it's great for my fitness. I've taken up Pilates really working on my flexibility. It's been great for me. I'm all, you know, working out, walking, Peloton. But during a pandemic, I would do, you know, three, four workouts a day. But now if I have deposition, I get up at five, I work out, come do the deposition, then maybe work out after the deposition. If no deposition, like today, yesterday, let's say today I have, I just got an injection of my shoulder. So I was at 6.30 physical therapy. Then I work out, then I come here, I'm doing this with you. I have American College meeting a little later, then I got another case. So, you know, a full day, I'm leaving town tomorrow, so I've been trying to get a lot of stuff done that my wife's assigned me to do while she's gone. But I love to go to the office. I'm a kind of guy, I'm old school in that sense, that I like law firms. I'm not a millennial law firm guy working at home. Now, I did that a little bit in the pandemic, and it was fine. But for me, I like to be in the office. And what I think one of the great things for plaintiff firms is sharing ideas and meeting with other people and talking about cases. And that's where you're really going to get some great synergy and momentum on these cases. And I don't understand these lawyers that want to do everything from their living room 
and they don't want to be part of being the case. Now, the pandemic, the traffic was great. I was in two trials during the pandemic, which was another incredible experience to go through this in that sense and being in court with a mask and doing all of that and with jurors with masks. But I like what I do. I Right now, I don't have any plans to really change. I like to go you know, out of town a little bit more now. My, my wife, now that our kids are getting grown, or saw on me about it. And last year, right before the pandemic, I went to Africa. Came back right when the pandemic started. So had a good start. And then, of course, we're locked down for quite a bit of time here in Los Angeles. It's not like the South. But I think to be a trial lawyer, you have such a stressful life that you overlook your mental and your physical condition. And I think working on that a lot will help you be better, live longer, feel better when you're doing this, because it is a very stressful job, no doubt about it. Look, my dad, he didn't work out. He smoked, he drank, but that's what lawyers that were in trial lawyers in his era did. You know, they go after court, they have drinks, they tell all the stories. The next morning, they're up early in the morning, drinking coffee, not, not eating good, smoking cigarettes, working on the next day of case. So to do what you need to do today, you have to be physically and emotionally fit. Yeah, sounds like the idea of just being able to lead yourself and be intentional about it. Brian, how do you define success? For me, I think success is to continue to help people to develop quality lawyers to be there to continue on this practice that we have. And that's, for me, success is not about money. Obviously, you want to win the cases. If you don't win cases, you're not going to be able to pay for the people that you need to support you in doing this. I think I'm successful because I enjoy what I'm doing every day. I've never had a day where I drove to the office. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to go to work today. I, I never felt that way. Even though there can be some stressful stuff and in a plaintiff firm, you know, there's fires all the time. But I like that. I like being in trial. I, I like to call it, I like cramming for finals every night, even though I used to be where I wrote everything out and I was so prepared. Now it's harder, more cases, more work cases are bigger. If you love what you do, you're successful. And it also sounds like family's also been very important to you and your wife and your children. Family has been important. My one daughter's playing college soccer, so I was going back to the East Coast, watching her. My other daughter's back east. I'm going back there. My son and my wife has, was a lawyer, uh, but she sacrificed that for the family. She's done a, a marvelous job as a great mother and mentored my daughters and my son, and I obviously couldn't have done it without my family. They're supportive of me, although they give me a hard time, too. I mean, they're not like acting like I'm Michael Jordan, believe me. No way. Because yeah, I'm curious, just over the last like just several years, especially even the early years, I imagine you really wanted to be there for your family. I, I don't know if you if you were or you were not, but just how were you able to? No, I was there. One daughter had four years high school, three sports, four years varsity. So you can imagine all the games plus club plus the sun plus star. I went to almost every game. I coached my two daughters of basketball, won 83 games in a row, coaching that was hated by everyone in the area. So I've, I've done all the coaching. Eventually they get to that age where they're like, forget you. Now they're go to the club. But I've coached soccer, baseball, basketball. I won championships. And I don't think everyone won soccer, but in flag football, every time 
basketball championships, baseball championships, but not soccer. So I don't know if the word is balanced, but how are you able to juggle the two between like you know, your commitment you know, to your clients as a trial lawyer and operating at that elite level, and then at the same time also being there for your kids? It's hard. And I think when you have the time, you have to maximize it. Because when you're in trial, you don't have as much time. So when you're not, you need to maximize to do things, stay home later. Drive. I mean, I used to drive to school. I would go to trial, I'd drop off one of my kids at school. One thing I wish I had seen... My second daughter, who's studying for the bar right now, was seven years old, and she went to the UCLA basketball camp at Poly Pavilion, taught by the head coach UCLA women's program. Kathy Olivier at the time was well-known. And I go there, and I talk my daughter's way in there, even though she's done there. I go, come on, she could do it. She's this, that. So it's like 8 to 14 let's say the camp and you know, the way they do these camps, two or three days, you start off, they put you in teams, you work on all these skills. And at the end of the day, the last day they do like a one-on-one three point contest, dribble this free throw contest. So I have been working with this daughter since she was like three on a short basket in my backyard on free throws. I held the record in my high school for a while. I was a great free thrower. And it's all about a routine and concentration. And I had her, how she put the ball and the number of dribbles and how she looked, bent her knee, and shot. So I'm, I go off to trial. Trial's going to come over. At the end of the day, I'm going to come and pick her up at UCLA Poly Pavilion with you know, all the banners and John Wooden, you know, very historic place. And I come up and they go, oh, man, you missed it. I go, what happened? Oh, you missed Diana. I go, what happened? They go, well, Diana was in the finals of the free throw shooting contest at seven years old against a 14-year-old who's a neighbor of ours, lives up the street. And Diana got up there, and she made eight out of ten free throws. And the other girl got up, and she made eight out of ten free throws. And then they went back and forth, and then Diana lost. But they gave her the coach's award for the whole camp. That was a training exercise coming to fruition with her on just shooting free throws and visualizing that and having a routine, just like how you would cross-examine someone. So I missed that, but a lot of the things, I was able to make it. I made a lot of the high school games, college games. So I was pretty good in the balance, but back to the balance, it's very hard to get out of balance. And you have to... You know, I like to keep lists, write things down on a calendar and budget out my time, even the night before every day and what I'm going to do and make sure that you're hitting all the areas. But it's it's a very hard task to, to maintain. To anyone who's, who's listening that would ever say that winning doesn't matter, I'll say that if you have kids and you see your kids winning and you see them succeeding, I think there's no greater feeling. I think that, that in itself is probably proof that winning does matter. But you got to be careful. I mean, I see these parents... Like I would go to the high school soccer games and my wife would be so upset with me, like why I wasn't sitting in the stands. I would go stand on a corner and just watch because these, you know, armchair quarterbacks, whatever people that never played are yelling at the coach, think they know everything. And these parents are living through their kids, you know, Pop Warner, they call it daddy ball is these guys, you know, some were good, some weren't, and they living through their kids. So what I liked about it was just the, 
real life experiences that you get from winning and losing. Maybe about 15 years ago, for two years, a friend of mine was a coach at a local high school. So I went there to coach the offense for them. We were high school buddies. And I had already coached, you know, when I first got out of college, I was coaching my high school as a top program, national champs two years ago. And I went to do it with him. And I was totally into it. Even though I was practicing, doing trials, I was totally into it. But the thing that turned me off on it, which is probably a bad thing, I took the losses harder than the players that played in the games. They're like bummed and they're all, hey, you know, it's great. We're going to go do this. And it's like nothing happened. And I I can't do that from a sporting event. So I, I can't. I'm getting out of it. When I'm taking this harder than these guys, I, I can't be doing this anymore. It's interesting. It's like you've been a part of teams that have succeeded at the highest level. You've been a part of teams maybe that were losing teams, you know, at one point and then became winning teams. What do you find is really the difference between the two? You know, even if you don't, and I've been on teams that didn't have the best players that won because they had a great culture, a great chemistry on the team. The best players don't always win. Very often they don't. Mediocre achievers, they, you know, sometimes they're very satisfied with themselves. They feel like they're doing a lot. The highest achievers always feel like they're not, they're not doing enough. The true champion is always behind. You got to keep the guys running ahead of you. You got to catch that person. When you, when you think you're there, they're going to look, you know, I'm going to win. And the guy's going to bloods right by you. There's, there's something you just mentioned when you were talking about kind of like the losing and, and the feeling there about how you were taking the losses harder than you thought that, you know, the team was, do you believe it's important to take losses personally? Like, do you really have to be able to, to feel that and live with that to be a winner? That's a little extreme, which I probably have, but I think, and the way I've dealt with it now is if you did everything you can and you left it all in the field, you can feel bad about it, but you can't be down on yourself if you did everything you could. But did you encourage all your teammates during practice all the time? There's always something you could have done better that maybe could have contributed. There's always something. And, and Brian, who would you say, I know you mentioned the importance of, of having coaches, like who, who are some of your mentors today? Well, when I was growing up, it was my father. He's passed away. John Morgan, the big one. He would be the main mentor. Other non-lawyers that I, that I talked to quite a bit. Business guys that I talked to. And I, I talked to a lot of people. But for me, the key was having the mentors as I was coming up. And people that took interest in me and took the time. With me, I, I spend more time mentoring now. But I, I still consider myself being mentored every day. But I really like to see success of the other lawyers and to see them go out and win their first trial and to see them have that passion and love for it like I do. That makes me happy. If for someone listening is thinking, man, I, I wish I could have a mentor like Brian Panish or John Morgan, like what advice would you give to them? How, how can they get someone like yours attention? So you just got to, you know, seek them out. Don't be afraid to ask questions and you know, people are now we're opened up. They could get back to going to these seminars, meeting these lawyers and just talk to them. I would go to a lot of seminars when I was a young lawyer. You know, they didn't have any of this virtual stuff. You had to like drive there, sit in the chair and watch it. It's, it's advanced quite a bit. The opportunities are endless for you to get additional training, mentoring everywhere. And if anyone who's listening to this podcast could take away just even just one thing from our conversation, what, what do you believe that should be? Do what you love. That would be my number one thing. Do what you love because you're always going to be better at doing something you love. And if you don't like handling medical malpractice cases, don't do them. 
or if you don't like this kind of case, don't do it. Create your own niche, focus on what you'd love. You're going to be way better. And to take that a step further, how would you help someone differentiate between doing something that's that's difficult for them? That it is, you know, there's a high level of difficulty. It's challenging. They may be failing for some period of time, and for them to say, "Well, maybe this just isn't for me," versus, you know, you really should stick with that. Well, I mean, if you're going to bail on when things get tough, you know, that's as uh, they say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. In your life, you know, you talk to kids about that all the time. Like, I, I can't do this. I give up, but. You can do it. And if you have a can-do attitude, you're going to be able to do things. And, and Brian, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think it means to elevate performance of yourself and others in all aspects and to benefit everyone. As a plaintiff lawyer, if you're out there changing things, being creative, getting larger verdicts, it's going to help everybody else raise up in their practice and eventually as I come back to the clients that some lawyers, you know, lose track of why we're doing this. And all of this is going to eventually benefit and inure to the benefit of the clients of why we're doing this. I want to give a huge thank you to Brian Panish for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Brian said that true champions don't compete with others. They compete with themselves. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Brian Panish, check out the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when I'll be speaking with acclaimed trial attorney, author, sought-after speaker, and the host of the Trial Lawyer Nation podcast, Michael Cowan. I'm not going to pretend like the first couple of times when you know I had borrowed so much money to fund the case that I didn't know what would happen if I lost it. And it was my biggest case and I needed the money and my lines of credit were running all the way up. It was a lot harder to hold out, but I'm glad I did. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Mm-hmm.